morning. Let's clap to our Savior this morning. Go ahead and have a seat. We want to welcome you. Well, I hope you feel good. I hope you got an extra hour of sleep. Amen, right? All right. Yes, we want to welcome you today to the second service. Great full house today. Welcome those who are watching online. We love you and are so thankful that you are with us today as well. You know, it's an amazing thing as we sing these songs together this morning. We, we were singing a lot about our identity, our identity of who we are. When you actually begin to contemplate, and I want you to do this with me, okay? Contemplate the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God, not because we deserved it, right? We don't deserve that, but because the God of the universe humbled himself to such a degree that Paul even called it scandalous, that it was a scandalous kind of humility that he humbled himself, put on skin, became one of us, and he, he did this because not because he needs us in relationship. We understand that, right? But because the God of the universe, let this just speak to you, because he wants us. He wants us to be in this relationship. And, and we're in this incredible series in the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me to 1 Peter. And we're systematically kind of working through this book. And the title of the series is called Stand Firm. And and, and it's a lot about understanding our identity in Christ, okay? Now, here's the beautiful thing about systematically working through a book of the Bible. When you do this, it's, it's beautiful because what it's going to cause you to do, it's going to cause you to, to have to engage in some of the more difficult passages of Scripture. Uh, and you have to kind of engage in some of that. And you have to begin to wrestle and grapple with this. You can't just spot check what you want to pick and, 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 and you know, you have to begin to really kind of grapple with some of these things. And this is exactly what Peter is beginning to do. Now we're also, you should know, going to be looking and going back and forth a little bit into not only first Peter, but also into the gospel of John. So if you want to go ahead and go there with me as well, we're going to be moving back and forth. Now, let me kind of catch you up. If you haven't been here in the first chapter of this incredible letter that Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were going through a lot of hostility because of their faith. They were going through hardship and difficulties and they had a government that was opposing them and was even persecuting them and even killing some of them. And they are wondering this question, how do we respond as believers that don't really belong in this world because of its values, we're like aliens, we're strangers in this world, how do we respond? Because you see, when you got saved, if you placed your faith in Christ, he didn't automatically take you up to heaven, did he? He left you here on this world to be a representation of himself, of Jesus. He wants you to represent him and for me to represent him along with you. So what Peter starts doing, okay, with these believers is he's going to do what, what, what we kind of were doing in these songs, remind you of your salvation and what Christ did for you. That's what he does in chapter 1. Now, out of that, he starts reminding you, if you're a believer today, of your identity because of what Christ has done. You are a son of God now. You are a daughter of God now. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And, and now, not only are you a joint heir, now not only who you are, but what you have and possess because of Christ. Now, what he's going to begin to do in the latter part of chapter 1 into chapter 2 is he's going to begin to start to talk about these behaviors that should start flowing out of the life of someone who is identified as being with Jesus Christ. So you really need to start today by asking yourself, 
Am I a believer? Am I a believer? Have I accepted that salvation that Christ has provided? If I am, then I understand that I have a new identity and that I am a stranger in this world that is hostile towards Christianity and towards my faith and it's countercultural. And and as a result of transformation, our lives should start producing some different behaviors. Now, here's what here's what I'm just going to be straight up with you today. Some of these behaviors what you're going to find that Peter is going to begin to talk about, you need to know, are antithetical to the way that your flesh wants to function. You're going to find that what Peter is going to begin saying, that if you try to do this in your own power, in fact, what you're going to find is there's going to be a resistance within you to what Peter and what Paul and what, even, what Jesus has told them, and now they're telling these, this group of believers, you're going to find this resistance kind of begin to emerge within you because it's counterintuitive to our flesh. Because here's what, here's what the bottom line is. Peter is going to begin not to tell them to rise up in rebellion. He's going to begin to tell them to put into practice the very things that Jesus had told him to do, which was what? Love your enemies. And, and he's going to begin to use a word. It's a Greek word, hupotasso, and it's a word that, that I know that as I say what this word is, Pastor Randy began to bring it up last week and did a masterful job talking about that. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's this word submissive, to submit oneself, all right? How are we to live in a world that's not our home anymore? And Peter is going to begin to talk about this word submission, and he's going to begin to speak to his audience. You should know they would take a letter like this, and they would, they would pass this letter around to all the different churches that had been planted. And they would, they would be listening for instruction from these who were the apostles to tell them how to, how to live their lives out. Now, what Peter is going to begin to do, and I want to do with you in this next few moments, is he's going to begin to take them to, because we're resistant to submissing, uh, being submissive, he is going to begin to take them and take us to who our model for submission and what that word really means and what it looks like. And as someone that follows Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, how do we begin to imitate that the way that Christ did this? So what I want to invite you to do over the next few minutes with me, we're going to go to the Gospel of John. I want to, I want to take you to this place of, of the upper room for just a moment where Jesus would have his final supper with his disciples. They would have a Passover meal together. So I want you to just envision with your imagination what this room would have been like. Go with me there in your mind. They're having their final meal together. They're getting ready. Everything that Jesus has been pouring into them over a three-year period of teaching them what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is coming to this culmination where in just a matter of hours, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be denied. He's going to be abused by others, his, his, even his own, his own creation. He's going to allow this to begin to happen. He's going to be ultimately, it comes to a culmination with a crucifixion on the very next day. Now, Peter, our author of this book that we are working through, uh, you need to know that he was in this room. He was witnessing all of these things that were transpiring and they were impacting his life and God was doing this work in his life, right? And, and they're all still struggling with understanding what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. They're really grappling with this. 
And, and here they are with him on this last night before the brutal torture and the beatings and ultimately his death on a criminal's cross. When we think of the cross, we think of something beautiful. You need to understand that when Jesus was talking about going to the cross, it was not thought of in that kind of way. A cross was the most humiliating way for a person to die. It was for someone who was guilty. It was for someone who had did who had done wrong, you know, and did wrong to others and, 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 and had rebelled against the government. And it was not for someone who was sinless or someone who was selfless. And Jesus would willingly go to this cross. And this is what's going on in this upper room in spite of all that Christ has taught them through the three years about being selfless, about loving others, about loving people in spite of their brokenness, about forgiving one another, how frustrating it must have been for him on this very night where he knew everything was coming to this head where they were now striving for position. They were pridefully politicking with one another and they were arguing with, with one another. Do you remember what they were arguing about? Who was the greatest? Who was going to be sitting next to Jesus in his kingdom? They, they wanted the kingdom part and the notoriety that comes with that, but they didn't want what was going to happen as a result of this and they didn't understand. So you know what they were in? They were in a prideful showdown. This happened within this upper room. There was something that was supposed to happen before the meal and nobody was willing to step up and do this. It was, it was a ritualistic thing called foot washing. And that was reserved for the lowest in the social pecking order that was reserved for that person to wash the feet of others. It was not only ritualistically important for this significant meal, but it was pragmatically important because the way that they would eat, they would lay kind of on their sides and their feet would be next to, to one another. They didn't wear shoes like we wore and they didn't have asphalt and concrete like we have. So they would walk through these streets and they were grimy and there was refuse that was on these streets because of the animals. Their feet were nasty. And somebody had to wash feet. And they noticed that there was not a servant that was there to do this on this evening. And so this, this showdown was happening. Who was going to step up? I think about a showdown kind of like this. I don't know if this ever happens in your house, but, um, but earlier this year, my doctor, uh, my, excuse me, my daughter was, was, uh, was tempted by Pastor Randy into getting a, a new kitten, okay? All right? And, and, and I, in my willingness to submit to my daughter and ultimately submit to my wife in this, okay, uh, we got a kitten. Now, here's the problem, okay? I'm teasing Pastor Randy. Here's the problem. I, I've never liked cats. I am fairly convinced that cats are a product of the fall, okay? I'm just saying, I'm sorry for those of you who like cats. Kittens are cute, but the problem is they turn into cats, amen, right? And the kitten was cute at first, but, but now it's a cat. And here is what, I, I never wanted a cat. I've never liked cats when my sister had them. Um, and, and here is the thing. Uh, so we have the, had this cat over the last six months. And, uh, and, and I don't like the cat. And, and, and especially whenever cats do this thing, and forgive me for being maybe a little too graphic, but when they start doing this thing, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'll only do that once, all right? Uh, but when they start doing that, uh, uh, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, 
that comes out of them, I am convinced is, has come straight out of the pit of hell, okay? And, and then it's on, it's, on the, it's on my floor. Now, what are you talking about a showdown, Bart? Well, apparently my family has, has learned this trait that, that you act as if you didn't see it, and if you didn't see it, then that means you don't have to pick it up and clean it. Does anybody else, you have this problem in your family? All right? The rest of you are liars, okay? And so, but here's the deal. And so my family, there's a showdown that comes with whatever that is that's on the floor, and the one that sees it has to clean it, and, and that's the one who's submissive at that point. And you need to know that there, this was kind of, that's a lowly job, right? This was the lowliest of jobs to be done. And these disciples are looking at one another, and they're, they're staring each other down. And Peter probably looked at Andrew like, are you going to do this or what, man? And Andrew's like, I'm not doing this. I invited you to this party. What are you talking about? I'm the one that invited you. I'm the one that introduced you to Jesus. And maybe Peter is looking at James and John. Are you guys going to do this? Someone needs to do this. And, and, and James and John are like, we're not doing this. Did you not hear the man call us the sons of thunder? Man, that is one bad name right there, okay? Sons of thunder don't wash feet. Are you kidding me? And then, and then maybe Matthew maybe looked at Judas, and Judas looked at Matthew, and they're like, not our job. We handle the money, okay? I'm not doing that. You know, by the way, Judas was quite preoccupied that evening, just saying. And, and on that same evening, may, maybe, maybe Thomas was like, I really doubt whether I could do a good job of this, okay? Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't know. Bartholomew and Philip were looking at one another. Should we? Well, we're not really on the inner circle, but hey, if we do this, then they're going to push us even farther to, further to the margins. So there's this standoff that is happening on who is going to actually humble themselves, now, what I want you to, to write down is this, is that a standoff of pride will always lead to a true standstill of, of real fellowship that God desires for you in your life. When there's this standoff of pride that's happening, now think about this. This is where the story gets crazy. This is where, where Jesus is watching all of this go down, and God, who is incarnate in Christ, he is, he is the God of the universe, Despite all of the humility he's already demonstrated by the way that he came into this world, by the way that he lived for 33 years up to this point, and in spite of the scandal of all of this, in spite of the fact of his omniscience of knowing all of their, all of their flaws and their imperfections, and this is what really blows me away, in spite of the fact that in his omniscience he knew all of their future failures. You hear what I'm saying? He knew that they were even going to betray him and deny him and run away. And in that moment, the God of the universe takes the initiative to submit and to do the very thing that he said he came to do. In Mark 10, 45, it says, he says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. And he begins to get up. And he takes off his outer garment. And there maybe are still bickering with one another. This is what a servant would, would do is to take off that outer garment. And, and he walks over to the servant, the servant's pitcher and basin. Can you envision this with me? And they're, they, they, they probably are beginning to be stunned into their silence at this moment. Because this is the one who should not be doing this. And yet he gets up 
He takes the initiative and he pours water from the pitcher into the basin. And when I'm in this room, I can hear the water. Do you hear the water? I hear the water and, and, and he begins to pour this into the basin and they're stunned into silence as he begins to wash their filthy, grimy feet, thus breaking the showdown, breaking it, breaking it down. Now, let me ask you this question. Was their feet that was being washed, was it deserved? I think we know the answer to that. Did they deserve to have their feet washed by one who was innocent and perfect? And I try to imagine the looks upon their faces as this incredible act of selflessness was being poured out upon them. He even gets to Peter, our author. He gets to him and Peter's like, no way, you cannot do this. They were struggling with who the Messiah was and what he would be like. And Peter says, I can't let you do this. And Jesus says, unless you let me do this, you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And the Lord says, I I just need to wash your feet. The rest of you is good, all right? But here's what biblical submission looks like. Peter points us back to the model. Biblical submission, if you're writing this down, what does it mean? You gotta understand that it takes trust. And trust in whom? God. You're entrusting yourself to God into, that's a key word, into voluntary selflessness. I think about myself and the pride that I can struggle with and how often I have been in these kind of showdowns with others where I'm thinking, I'm not budging. You ever been in that place, right? Maybe some of you are there today. I'm not budging. I'm not. It's like a a game of spiritual chicken is on, right? Who's going to blink first? And you're kind of in this place where you're moving towards one another in that. And, and, and maybe you're there today. Maybe it's with, with somebody that's just hard to get along with. Does anybody have anybody like that, right? Maybe it's with a coworker that you're battling with or a classmate. Or, or maybe it's a, a family member that's just hard to get along with. And maybe if you're married, you're in a place of being in a showdown with your spouse. Surely not, Pastor Bart. Everyone in... Their marriage at EBC is probably perfect, right? Well, it's in a standoff. And when you're in a standoff, it often robs us and puts us in a standstill of the true fellowship. Who will blink? Who's going to give in? Jesus said these words, okay? He's just did this amazing act of servanthood before them. He modeled this and he says these words in this teachable moment. In John 13, he says, do you understand what I was doing? I mean, they really didn't. And he's saying, I want you to understand and I want you to get it. You call me teacher and Lord and you are right because that is what I am. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet and I want us all as an act of worship unto the Lord, I want us to say the next part of it out loud together. Say it with me. What should you do? You ought to wash each other's feet. He tells us. I've given you an example. Uh, Don't you love that we have a Savior that never asks us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself? He said, I'm going to show you what this looks like. I'm going to humble myself. Do as I have done to you. Do this to others. Love other people. Forgive others. Do it even when they don't deserve it. Now that you know these things, you see, now here is where the trust begins to come in for you when you do this you got to trust that God is going to bless you for doing that. 
that, that you, it's you relinquishing control and saying, God, I'm putting my life in your hands. So that's trust. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus did this, did it make him inferior to those that he was washing their feet? Some may say yes, but I think that we know the answer to that is absolutely not. Because he's going to say this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, and I'm going to show you another passage in a minute that will show that he was not inferior. He's going to say, love each other. That's an action for you to do. Love each other. Serve each other. Submit to one another. Mutually, right? Your love, and he said, just as I've shown you this and I've done this for you, your love for one another is going to do something. It's going to produce something before the world. It's going to show that you actually follow me that you are my disciples. So if you're writing something down, here's something else that's good to write down. Our submission to God's will and to one another is a testimony of Christ in our lives before an unbelieving world. You say, why are you taking us to this? Because this is what Peter was taking them to. He said, whenever people are mistreating you, whenever the world is doing you wrong, this is how I want you to begin to behave. This, this word submission, man, we hate it, don't we? We hate this word. It's not in our nature to submit to anyone. And again, Pastor Randy did a phenomenal job speaking about this with the government. And that was the flow, with the government. And then it, and then it flows into uh, maybe with, with a, uh, an employer that's treating you improperly. And now it's going to begin to, to flow into the family. So I want to give you some context and and remember, these Christians were being so mistreated and persecuted, and how do you act in this? And if you were here last week, you know that in chapter 2, he starts saying, this is what your response as a follower of Christ should begin to look like and why it's important that you behave properly in this context. He says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. And they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And remember, they were being falsely accused of setting Rome on fire. Nero was using that, and, and he was abusing them. And, and, and it says, verse 13, now this is important, because this is what everything after hinges upon. For the Lord's sake, what is the next word? Submit. But it's important that you read the first part before it says submit, for the Lord's sake. Because the Lord told us to do this. We don't like this. But you know, here's the bottom line. We are often going to be faced with things that we don't like. And we have to go ahead and choose whether or not we are going to be obedient to the one that we call Lord or we are going to be the Lord of our own lives. And he says, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. He's, he's talking about some government here. He's talking about, he was talking about the, the, the employers that were treating you wrong. And he's talking about now in the family for God called you. This is your calling as a believer to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example. You must follow in his steps. Similar words when Jesus said to Peter, come follow me. Come follow me. 
But this word submission is so misunderstood and and it's so antithetical to our self-preserving flesh and we don't like this word and we may think of submission like this. If you you think of submission and in our culture when it's misunderstood, we think of it like this. That means I lost. That means I lost. When I was thinking of submission this week, the the image that came to my mind was this. MMA, right? They even use this word to submit someone. It's to impose your will upon someone to force them to, what do we call it? Tapping out. To tap out, right? And this, this word, it, we don't like it. It's a loss of control. It, it, to us, it indicates weakness or, or that I'm a doormat and I let others walk on me, right? And, and, but before we go further in this passage in chapter 3, as we continue this flow here into the different domains of how to submit to even those who aren't treating us properly, because of our culture here, right, and, and the fact that we, that we just don't like this word, I mean, I don't like it because it, it makes me feel like I've lost and, and I, I've got a little bit of an issue with losing, Anybody else like that? Okay. I mean, whenever I play Candyland with my kids, I'm, I'm going for the jugular. I'm just letting you know, okay? I know that I need help. My wife even said when we played Monopoly, she said this, I don't even like you right now, okay? I realized at that point I needed counseling, okay? Because here's the thing, I like to win. And if I don't feel like I'm winning, if I don't feel like I'm winning, then it might make me feel like I'm weak. And so back to the Last Supper, all right? Remember who our model of submission is. Jesus leaves the upper room to go pray now. Judas has already left to go betray him. And Jesus is now gonna get up and he's gonna go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray. And in this moment of praying, he is, he is wrestling with the position of the Father, okay? And he's praying to the Father and he's saying, if there's anything else, any other way that we can do this? Can we do it another way? Because he understands the gravity of what he's taking upon himself. It says that he began to sweat drops of blood. The stress was so immense. And he's, he's wrestling and praying with God the Father at this moment. But what does he say? You know what he says? He knows that our greatest need is salvation. So what he's going to do is he's going to submit to the position of the Father. And he's going to submit to the fact that we have a great need that he can only meet. Nobody else could do this. So he says, not my will, but your will be done. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Father. I'm not going to consider myself here. I'm I'm going to consider others' needs, that they have a, a need for a Savior, and I am the only one that can provide that. So he submits to the will of the Father. He submits to the needs of others. Here's what we would say about submission again. I like thinking of it like this because this is what I see. It's voluntary selflessness. It's voluntary selflessness. I think of another illustration, and Randy brought this up last week, with how the Trinity, the the three in one, who are all equal, and yet in their different functions, they at certain times you will read about how they would willfully submit to the other. Does this mean that any one is inferior to the other? I thought about it this week when I was driving. It's kind of like this, a roundabout. You know what a roundabout is? It's one of these, okay? We got a lot of them going up all over our city now. And, and I actually kind of like them unless, you know where I'm going, there's those that don't know how they work. 
Are you with me? Y'all are like, preach, brother, preach, okay? And when you get, I, I told Randy this week, you know, I was thinking about this. You could call these the circle of submission. You'll never think about them differently. Because what you have to do is realize that when the person who's coming from the left, is that person any better than you? But no, it's just that you are going to submit to the proper order. And when people don't submit to the proper order at certain times, they don't work. And it's chaos. And, and some of you start telling people they're number one and all kinds of things, right? Okay, all right? Or hurry up. Or you get by, behind someone that doesn't understand it's their turn to go. And you're like, go, okay? Right? And, and, and it's, it, you're, in this, you're in this spiritual circle of submission. So back to the story, what struck me about Jesus and his acts of submission was that his, his power was fully intact. And you need to understand that. I'm like, I have to show you this. When Randy was preaching last week, I was thinking about this. It says this, if you go to chapter 18, Judas the betrayer knew this place, this garden, because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. There were dozens upon dozens. It was a big mob that was with Judas. Now with blazing torches and lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. They were expecting a fight, right? Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. You say submission is weakness. Let's keep reading. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. Now this is what I want you to see. I am he. In the original language, it's this. The I am is here. Do you understand what he's saying there? Well, they didn't quite get it, but here's what happened in his power. The I am, now the Jews understood this because to say I am is to say I am God. The I am. And it says this, it says this, that, 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 that at that point, and since I am the one, excuse me, back up, he says, it says, Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, he, and I am he, Jesus said. And, and as Jesus said, I, that I am is here, they all drew back and fell to the ground. His words were powerful, so powerful it knocked them to the ground. They were stunned by this. And this, is, this was a voluntary submission because you think of this, Jesus had even said at another point, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene, I told you that the I am is here. I am the one you want. Let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Who's our author? Peter. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering? Now I want you to see this, that the Father has given me. Who's he submitting to? The Father. He's submitting to the Father at this point. Peter chose the sword. Jesus, at this point, critical moment chose submission. But I want you to take notice of the power and the position that is fully intact. 
This is what John is demonstrating as it was about the deity of God in this gospel of, 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 of Jesus, the deity of Jesus in this gospel of John. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. Now go back to the working definition of submission. Biblical submission is entrusting oneself into, into God into voluntary selflessness. So Peter took them to this example of Jesus, and I wanted to take you to this because as we begin just in these last few moments to even look at chapter 3, remember this, that there were no chapters and verses when this was written. It all flows together. It's not like it stops at chapter 2 and it's a new section. No, it all goes together when you read this, and when you read it, it can, it can be, it was controversial then, it's controversial today. It, it can be misused today. It can be harmful if it's not understood in its context, but when it's in proper context, I'm telling you it's beautiful. When you understand it, it's such a picture of the gospel. First Peter 3, 1 says this, in the same way, in the same way as what? If you read chapter two, in the same way that Jesus demonstrated submission. You wives must accept the authority. This is spiritual headship. This, hip, this hupotasso, it's to be submissive of your husbands, the spiritual authority of your husbands, okay? This is what he's saying. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, that's the gospel, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. We're going to explain some of this just quickly, okay? You should clothe yourselves instead with that with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God. Do you see the trust part there? They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, oh boy, here we go. Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. Now, I don't know about your household, but my wife still calls me master. Does that happen in your homes, right? I'm talking tough today because my wife's out of town, all right? <laughs> you say, what is he saying? Ladies are like, oh, no, he didn't. Let, let's, let's see what he's saying. Now, he's going to say some weird, some things that we could be like, what? Treat your, he's going to go on. He's going to say this. They put their trust in God and the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right. Now, look at this. Without fear of what your husbands might do. There's a trusting of God in this, okay? All right? So as Christians, what he's doing is he's taking, he's taking our behavior in the world up a notch. You need to know that, that this, was, this was revolutionary, okay, all right? What he's about to say is even more revolutionary because we need to understand this, that men in this culture did not treat women with respect. I hate to tell you this, but in this time, and this was wrong, and I'm going to show you that Jesus and Peter and Paul and all of these are, are trying to restore it back to how it's supposed to be. They did not treat women with respect. They treated, oftentimes treated women as property. But Peter and Paul and these others are saying, but not you. You are to be different. 
You're to be different in how you treat. Now look at what he says, okay? Now here's verse seven. In the same way, he's gonna talk to husbands now. In the same way as what? The way that Christ was submissive. Now he's saying, you husbands, he's saying be submissive. You must give honor to your wives. This is submission also. Husbands didn't do this in this time. Now he's saying be submissive to your wives in this way. This is not in headship, but it's submission to their needs. This is what we would call mutual submission. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. He's saying you have to treat this woman the way God is prescribing for you, men, or it's going to hinder your relationship with the Father because you need to understand something. You're treating his daughter with disrespect. And and I know if you're a dad and you have a daughter, you're like, nobody's going to treat my daughter with disrespect. You know what I'm saying, right? And this is what he's saying. She's my daughter, You're going to treat her right. Peter starts this passage. He says, in the same way, it's likewise, in the same manner in which Christ was submissive to the will of God and submissive to meet the needs of others. Now, let me give you some quick things that this is not for you women, okay? This is not for single people because he's clearly addressing uh, a husband and wife relationship. This is not as if all women are to be submissive to men in general, This is not about a dating relationship. My daughter has had some friend boys, okay, at certain times, and they've been some nice young men, but it is not their place to tell her what to do. By the way, we all know this, that boys are evil, right? Amen, right? We all know this, okay? You can applaud. I know this because I am one. My friend Clay, he would agree, okay? And and here's the thing. I've, I've told Trinity that you're not to be submissive to him. You're under my covering. Until there is a ring on your finger and, and there is a different, there's a different umbrella over your head of, 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 of this kind of spiritual leadership. And so you need to understand that this is not for single people. This is not about this gender situation because clearly he says it's speaking to wives and your own husbands. So here's the second part of this. This doesn't say a wife is to be submissive to other men. That's not what it says. Notwithstanding the, the thought that they, it could be that, again, not a gender situation, but just that person is in a place of, of, of authority or position within our community or our, it's not that you're to be submissive just to other men. This is important. It is not about being less valuable or less competent or inferior or less intellectual. That is not what is being said. How many of you men realize that your wives are smarter than you? Raise your hands. The smart men are raising their hands, okay? Amen. Amen. Big points. I know my wife is smarter than I am. We are different in the way that we think, though. And there are many ways, though, men, we need to acknowledge that women are 
more competent than we are in certain ways, and we are wise when we realize this. You may say, well, what in the world is he talking about when he says, she may be weaker than you are, but she is, he says, but she's your equal partner. In most cases, not all cases, but most men are physically stronger than most women. Now, I have seen some women that that, that could be a little different, okay? And they could give a man a run for his money and some of that, okay? But certainly also in this age, women were in, men were in a place of higher social status. Uh, and, and, and again, they were not treated properly. And notice men, so don't get too excited about this, that he says that, that they are weaker. It's a comparative language which would insinuate this, that we're all weak. Physically, in many cases, they're weaker. Now, the translation is she is a weaker vessel. We are both different kinds of vessels, and we should celebrate our differences. It's not wrong to be different. God has made us differently, okay? Now, this weaker vessel, as he describes her as being weaker or more fragile, it'd be like a beautiful vase that has a function to it. Whereas you can think of us men as more like this vessel. We're different. We're made differently. And Peter is pointing this out. And I especially want you to notice that he says this. He says, she is your equal partner. This was revolutionary what he was saying in this culture. Your equal partner in God's gift of new life. She is equally important. She is my daughter. She is valuable, but she is different in functionality. We are different in more than just our plumbing, okay? And I'll just put it that way. We're different. And in fact, the beautiful part of seeking to understand what this begins to look like in this culture was when you begin to understand how terrible women were treated in this time. And Jesus comes along and he revolutionizes this and he models for us how women are to be treated with respect and with value. And Jesus always elevates women to the status in which he created them. Now here's another thing. Submission is not demanded. Woman, submit. Let me know how that works out for you. I just, I'd like to know. I tried that in my first year of marriage, if I can be candid with you, and it didn't work out very well. I believe right after that I had to pull a matrix because there was a shoe that was coming at my head rather quickly, and, and I was kind of like, right? A man came up to me last uh, service and said, you got a shoe thrown okay? Um, but this is not, it's not something that's demanded. By the way, I've learned something in my 49 years of life, and that is this. If you have to tell people you are in charge, you are not in charge. Fifth part of this. It doesn't remove your voice in decisions, ladies. Your voice is so important in decisions. Wise is the husband who discusses all decisions with his partner. And talks these things through because many times they are closer and they are more sensitive to the Lord in certain areas than we ever could be because, again, we're different. And that's what makes a strong team. And here is the other part of what this is not. 
This submission absolutely does not ever mean that you are to subject yourself or your children to any form of abuse. Never. Not physical, not mental, not sexual. You are to... You are not to keep yourself in harm's way. Jesus Christ never raised a hand toward a woman. He never spoke harshly to a woman. He never treated a woman poorly. In fact, when you watch and observe his life, Jesus always stood in between those that were coming and treating women abusively. He stood and he stood in their place in defense for them. He always treated women with respect. So what is this? It's, it's, it's this. Submission for one another is all about, write this down, it's about an attitude. It's an attitude of mutual respect. Mutual respect. This attitude of, of respect. Respecting that in God's economy, I don't know why he did it this way, but he did. That he has placed a husband in a place of a position as a leader, a spiritual leader in the home. And Men, what, what this is, it's, it's, it's you submitting to her in the sense that you love her as a person. It's viewing her needs above your own. There's these words in, in where Peter's talking, where Paul's talking, these words, love and respect that emerge back and forth. It's this circle of submission to one another. Ladies, it's recognizing that God has placed him in this place. Men, what this says to me, when I, when I really begin to grasp this, it says this to me, because God has placed me in this, in this position that it ought to sober me up into realizing that I have a spiritual responsibility to lead in my home and that I answer to God for that and how I do this. Paul echoes the same idea just quickly. He says in Ephesians 5, and further he says, look, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So many times where I will submit to, to my wife and something, uh, not, it's, it's not that she's superior to me or I'm superior to her, it's that we're working together in this, okay? And there have been times where we have had a disagreement and there was a time where she has to trust God that he has placed me in this, in this position and she trusts God and, and when I do make a mistake, she doesn't hang that mistake over my head that we forgive each other. We all are gonna make some mistakes. He goes on and he talks about the position for wives. This means submit to your husbands. Look, as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Remember, it's about respect. It's about respecting him. It's been said that the thing that men probably need more in a marriage relationship is they need to feel respected. To feel respected. Well, what if he doesn't deserve it? Well, go back to washing of feet because none of us have deserved what Christ has done for us. None of us deserve the grace that he shows us. It's not, it's not a position that, that is deserved. It's, it's something that's prescribed by God. Now, let me give you some takeouts, okay? Some takeaways from this. How do you begin to reflect Christ to your husband? And maybe some of you have a husband that is an unbeliever and he begins to talk about this. What does it look like? How do you reflect Christ to your husband and to the world? Just very quickly, here's just the takeaways. Be submissive to his position. Submissive to his position, submissive to Christ first, but submissive to the position that Christ has set him up within your family. Here's the second thing that I see in this passage. Be authentic in your faith. Ladies, you will never 
nag him into spiritual leadership. And Peter draws this out. Be authentic, be the real deal. Be real in your faith. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the gospel, your godly lives will speak to them, look, without any words, without any words, they will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. The words pure and reverent, they they speak of blameless. They speak of authenticity in your faith. You're the real deal. You're not nagging him to become a believer. You're not writing post-its of of scriptures and putting it on the bottom of his beer can, okay? You, you You are just living your faith out in front of him and he sees something that's different about you. What you are again doing is submitting to the will of the Father and entrusting yourself to him. He goes on and he says this, to be mindful of your inner beauty. Now, he is not saying that you, you cannot, you're already beautiful. He's not saying, he's not giving a legalistic set of things that a woman should wear and how she's, he's saying, don't be so preoccupied as, as our culture would tell you, that's what makes you beautiful. No, he's saying, cultivate the inner beauty, which is unfading. And by the way, that is going to be what is most attractive to him anyway, as you live together. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You say, well, what if I'm an extrovert? What if I'm a more loud? The gentle and quiet spirit he's talking about, when he uses gentle, it's the word meek. It's like Jesus. It's strength under control. The quiet spirit is not that you don't, it's not saying you don't have a voice. That quiet spirit is this. There's peacefulness that is within you. It's this shalom. It's peace resides within you. It's not mousy. It's a peaceful disposition in the middle of hardship. It's for both introverts and extroverts. And be respectful to him outwardly. What in the world is this when he called Abraham her master, okay? Literally, this word, it's Lord, okay? Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, O-R-D, okay? Not godlike. It's a term of respect. It would be how we would say sir to someone that we respect. It's, now here's, here's the point for you, okay? Your takeaway is it's an outward honor that you show him while others are listening. You're speaking honorably about him. You're not running him down. And that's a way of showing him respect. You brag on him. So men, revolutionary, what does he tell us to do in the same way? Give your wives honor. So number one, be submissive to her needs. Where he says, give her honor, this word is show her preference above everyone else. Where does she want to go eat? That's where you go. How does she want to decorate the house? That's what you do. You, you guys are like, oh man. No, he's saying show her preference. It's not where the kids want to eat. It's where she wants to eat. Ladies, this is your opportunity. Amen, right? Okay. This is what he's saying. Now, here's what he says next. Be considerate as you live with her. Again, revolutionary. They weren't considerate of their women. 
He's saying, treat your wife with understanding. You need to be a student of her. You need to learn about her. This means treat her, it's the word gnosis, with knowledge. You are sacrificially sensitive to her. You are thoughtful of her. You are mindful of her. You are cherishing her and you are nurturing her. That is your responsibility. That is your act of submission to her. You are putting her above yourself. Be chivalrous. Remember, weaker is not inferiority. It is understanding that women need to be more cherished and feel more cherished than men typically need to feel that way. You are the skillet, she is a beautiful vase. You are to stand in the place and be protective of her because the world is throwing garbage at her every single day. And you are to take that as Jesus did for us. Be chivalrous. And here's the final thing. He says, be her companion. Treat her with understanding as you live together. In this culture, they did not see their wife as a companion. They saw her as someone who would bear them children. And now Peter is saying, no, you are to treat them with honor. It's a circle of submission. And when we live like this, it strengthens our marriages. And it is a testimony to a world that doesn't want to submit to anybody. I want to just invite you to pray. We got we to gotta go. How can you love your spouse if you're a married person this week? How can you, as a husband, initiate, as Jesus did, this circle of submission? Wives, how can you show your husband's honor and love them in that way? How can you wash each other's feet are you in a standoff that has led to a standstill of the deeper fellowship that God desires for your marriage? We come back to this place of mutual submission and submit means this, we have to entrust and surrender our lives to our God first. Will you surrender your agenda and entrust yourself into God's hands today? We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful passage. Would you help us to know how to live it out? In Jesus' name, amen.